The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. Well, today we're going to talk about the exoneration of Jonathan Fleming. 1989, that's 25 years ago. What were you doing? That was the year of the San Francisco earthquake and Hurricane Hugo. The Exxon Valdez left a trail of disaster in Alaska and China left blood in the streets in Tiananmen Square. Jonathan Fleming, however, would remember it as the year he was arrested for a crime he didn't commit. So today I have two private investigators with me who were involved in Mr. Fleming's exoneration that just actually happened last month. Let me welcome Lieutenant Robert Ron and Kim and how do you pronounce your name, Kim? Anklin? Anklin. Anklin, thank you. Right. You're welcome. Good good morning, you guys. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So, thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, this is uh, such a compelling case. Uh, he's 51, Jonathan Fleming's 51 years old. He spent 25 years in prison. But first, before we get involved in that, Bob, please tell us all, a little bit about yourself, your background and how you got from where you were to where you are now. Sure, absolutely. Um, I'm a uh, retired lieutenant from the NYPD. Uh, I retired in 1993. Uh, prior to uh, achieving the rank of lieutenant, I was a homicide detective uh, with the police department, in, and I worked in Brooklyn uh, during the 80s. And uh, upon retiring from the, from the NYPD, I started uh, Management Resources, which is a full-service private investigative firm. And we've been in business for, uh, we just celebrated in March, our 20th year in business as, an, as a private investigative company. Oh, that's great. So you have, what, more than 40 years of experience then? Correct. 40 years, absolutely. Wow. And now, uh, curious, were you on the Homicide Task Force when Mr. Fleming was arrested? No, I had already gotten promoted at the time, and I was transferred out of Brooklyn, so I was not. Uh, I was working in Manhattan at the time Mr. Fleming was arrested. And not in the Homicide Unit. I was in a completely different unit at that point. Okay. All right. And then, um, Kim, mm-hmm. you're the managing partner and director of the company, the same company. Um, right. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I was a um, former crime and intelligence analyst in the city of Ventura, California, police department. And uh-huh. in 2002, I moved back to New York. I'm from New York. I moved back to New York, and uh, I met Bob at a conference up in New Paltz. 
and we started talking, and uh, here we are today, 12, 12 years later, working <laughs> investigations for 12 years. So I always say that, you know, Bob had the first eight years of his company with, with some peace, and then I showed up. And, uh, <laughs> Good for you. rocking and rolling. <laughs> Good for you. Now, so you were a tactical analyst for Ventura. What is that? Uh-huh. I was a, a crime and intelligence analyst. So basically, um, crime analysts can, um, we do administrative analysis, tactical analysis, and strategic analysis. So in the tactical analysis world, you're working with the um, different units for tactics, for, you know, SWAT and all the different business aspects of police business. So I was, uh, I was right along with them. In- okay. So you were involved, you worked with the gang suppression folks, narcotics, everybody. Right, right, all of them. Okay. Enjoyed every, every, every minute of it. It was a blast. And when you met Bob, were you already a private investigator or were you still thinking about it? No, I wasn't sure. I was up there for a seminar um, to see somebody that I had read about uh, speak, and that's how I met Bob. So I, I didn't have um, – I thought maybe I'd get another crime analysis job somewhere on the, um, the East Coast, mm-hmm. and uh, then this, this – caught my interest to take my skill sets and turn it into the private sector. Interesting. Any, for either one of you, any hesitation about getting in the private sector as private investigators after being in law enforcement? No, I, I have none. I, um, you know, d- during the 20 years that I spent uh, in the police department, uh, the, the best part of it, I, I felt, was being a detective. Uh, I enjoyed it very, very much. And to be able to take that uh, to take the you know those skills and to have the opportunity to be a you know to be a private investigator, uh, it, it was just like the natural thing to do for me when I retired. Now I, I know you're both certified criminal defense investigators. That's a certification that those of us in the field know about. Um, any how about any hesitation on working in criminal defense cases when you were on the other side of the fence? Well, <laughs> you that, laugh, that was a, that was, that was that a point a of contention. That's a, that was a point of contention for a little while um, when Bob and I started working together. And then uh, we, I actually, we actually went to a, a conference up in Massachusetts and we saw F. Lee Bailey speak. And he really, him and some others, the, uh, the attorney, I can never remember his, the defense attorney on the Duke Lacrosse case Oh. Where Mike Nifong, that DA, wound up was that having Cooper? to leave. Cooper? Right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And they spoke, and it, it really just started to change the way I was thinking. I said, wait a minute. We need to consider doing this, because we, you know, we were prosecution-type people. And, right. And uh, that really started to change the way we thought of things. And that was back, I believe, in 2008. And from then, the defense work uh, has really flourished for us. And we enjoy it so much. And I really think the reason why we enjoy it so much is because we were ethical detectives and analysts. Um, we were the good guys, you know, on the prosecution side. And if you're a good cop, you're going to be a great defense investigator. Right. Right. Well, good for you, because I know there, there is that, <laughs> that tension. Uh, <laughs> but you're right. You know, I mean, the good people rise to the top and, you know... Unfortunately, in every business and every profession, there are a few bad apples that taint the rest of us. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So, well, good for you guys. I'm, I'm really pleased to, to hear you. that you're taking this on. Uh, you know, as we say, it's God's work. <laughs> yes, it sure is. It, it is. It really is. <clears throat> yeah. So, 
Let's talk about Jonathan Fleming. Uh, you know, I've read all the news articles on his case, and it's it just seems like a heartbreaking situation when he was he had a solid alibi mm-hmm. that nobody would yes. listen to. <laughs> so, why don't you, um, either one of you, want to kind of take us through the the nuts and bolts of what happened when he was arrested? Kim, you wanna you wanna go ahead? Sure. He was in um, Orlando, Florida at the time of the homicide. The homicide occurred in the Williamsburg Projects in uh, Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York. Okay. Um, Fleming was in Orlando uh, at Disney World with his family um, when this happened. He had a great alibi. He had uh, plane tickets, phone receipts, hotel receipts. He had several members of his family that were with him. And ultimately, the evidence that was suppressed was... Um, interviews with hotel personnel that said that they saw him on the day wow. of the homicide. That evidence was suppressed. That was the Brady mater- part of the Brady material that was suppressed. Kim, can you explain what Brady material is? Sure. Um, Brady material is basically any, any material that um, could be in any form that would exculpate the, the, the defendant from the case. So, in other words... Like the other piece of the evidence was the receipt showing that he was paying a phone bill uh, a few hours before the homicide. That puts him in the state of Florida mm-hmm. just before this homicide, a few hours before this homicide. That's evidence that would have, you know, helped the defense. And right. that's, the, that's the Brady material. Brady is Brady versus Maryland, and actually that case is now over 50 years old. It is, and yeah. that's the case that went to the Supreme Court, uh, the uh, United States Supreme Court, and the United States Supreme Court ruled that you can't do that. And the prosecution is responsible for turning over all information, and particularly information that that might uh, exculpate the person that's being charged. Correct, and that's what is so pervasive now, and that's what you're seeing um, more and more of coming out. There's been many people who have been fighting to um, hold prosecutors accountable. Mm-hmm. And, and if I can back up a second, you know, prosecutors don't, uh, aren't, um, their feet aren't held to the f- same fire as any other attorney. A, an attorney who maybe even mistakenly has commingled a couple hundred dollars and pays it back, you know, could face disbarment. Prosecutors mm-hmm. have all the power and they have no punishment. There's no, there's, nothing happens to them. And that's right. the problem. Yeah, they're exempt from prosecution for the most part, unless, unless it's serious egregious situation. Even the most egregious cases, um, you're not seeing discipline. And that's what um, the professionals that we're working with are, and have been for decades, have been trying to do something to, uh, you know, help balance this this issue. And why do you think that is, Kim? What's the, what's the roadblock? The roadblock? Oh, um, yeah. Wow. It's it's a lot of power. Um, I'm I'm not quite sure because you know there's, there's politics is a big big factor. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd have to ask some of the uh, the people who have been working so hard um, to change all this. Uh, I know that there's a bill in New York that's going before um, the state senate has already approved it, and the uh, it's going before um, the assembly now, as we speak, to mm-hmm. form a commission for prosecution conduct. And oh, uh, we, we, we're very hopeful 
that maybe this is the time that things start to happen. Yeah. Yeah, so this information was buried. Now, there was a police officer involved, too, that uh, uh, was withholding information, wasn't there? Well, now, you know, now, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and the more that I look back on this case, yes, there was information that was in the detective's reports that pointed very clearly towards three suspects. Okay. Right? And that information was memorialized in the detective's reports. That wasn't necessarily hidden like the, like the other material, but what happens is, you know, uh, detectives could come to the prosecutors, and I'm just theorizing on right. this particular case, but I, as a general, as a whole, I'm understanding that the you know, detectives come to the um, prosecution, prosecutor and they say, okay, here's the case, and the prosecutor takes one look at it and then starts immediately to start to tunnel into a story or into a win for them. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, mm-hmm. they have this idea, and then they say to the detectives, now I want you to go back and go do this, 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 and this, mm-hmm. and they're trying and sometimes to take that square peg and put it in the round hole. Right. And once they, once they go that far, then they do everything in their power to make that fit. And if right. there's material that comes forward to discredit that theory... <laughs> And yeah. you've got somebody who doesn't, isn't as ethical as some of the other prosecutors, they'll hide it. Right. Yeah. And this is yeah, how a man spends pr- half of his life in prison. Yeah. And it destroys the, the theory, you know, and I see this all the time. You know, the, uh, the police detectives are working a theory, the theory of the case, and uh, just sometimes ignore anything that undermines that theory. Correct. Well, that's, that's Absolutely. What, that's Go what ahead, happened Bob. very early on. Uh, that happened very early on in, in this investigation. In fact, it happened hours after the homicide uh, when they interviewed the witness that Kim was referring to, and uh, they documented her statement uh, on their report. Uh, those those three suspects uh, were they were never uh, interviewed. They were never uh, the, the it was never followed up the lead that that witness gave them. Uh, at no time were they ever spoken to by the police, and they just sort of went in the other direction and uh, and never followed up on it. So it you know it was a flawed from the beginning. It was a flawed investigation. Now whether it was deliberate, you know, or or just sloppy work, either way, right? right. You know, interesting. So um, so the person that was killed was a guy by the name of Daryl Rush. Correct. And what were the what were the surrounding facts about? What was the killing about? Did, do you know that? Well, well the, there were the, several. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> no, <you laughs> Sorry <don't>. about that. <laughs> there, there, there were several theories uh, that uh, were out there that we we heard while we were conducting our investigation. Uh, it was uh, theories were that it was over drugs and or money and and that he had an argument with the uh you know with the suspects who 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 shot him and then a third theory was that it was over a gun so we're not really sure um you know which one of the three it was uh but there was some sort of verbal altercation with him prior to the the actual homicide i see okay and supposedly there were three people not just one right correct yeah Okay. And how, Did, and how the shooting happened, so that you know, I mean, how, how your viewers or your listeners will know is that, you know, we really believe 
you know, of course we weren't there, but the way that this case went is that we believe that the victim did come to this witness's house, was outside her apartment yelling up to her, and she could hear the arguing, and she Uh could hear the victim calling to her, calling her to come to the window. And as she's coming to the window, she hears the shots, and she drops to the floor, and she crawls to the window, and she peeks out over the edge of the window to look out, and nobody's there, because the victim actually ran probably about 300 feet around the corner of another building. Oh. So by the time she got to the window, everybody had scattered. So she didn't know that he was shot. She didn't find out until the next day that he had died. Wow. But that the police did interview her. her and take her to the, to the precinct and, you know, they had her full statement. And she, and she identified two by name and one with a full description. And, and how did Fleming up. get, how did he get identified? He was known in the area. And, you know, the witness, there's another witness that was across the courtyard in this, in this housing project. She was across the courtyard. She gets picked up on a, um, in a stolen vehicle. They, they pull her in. They hold her for several hours. And basically, you know how it goes. Uh, you know, do you know anything about any homicides? Well, actually, I was at the Williamsburg Projects when this guy got shot. Uh-huh. Well, now, now they're formulating how to lock her into some story. And she winds up saying, because she's got a deal coming, that uh, it was Fleming. Because they put that into her head. And did she know him personally? Did she know Fleming personally? She knew of she him. Knew him. She'd seen him just, around. She'd just seen him around. Okay. Yeah. All right. And she knew of him, and they, they wanted him. So they put that into her head, and she says, yeah, I saw him. And I saw him and another guy shoot the guy, shoot the, shoot the victim. Well, wh- where was the victim? Well, he was over, he was 427 feet away. And I was okay. up on the second floor window with bars across the top, throughout the window, thick bars, like three, four inches thick. I was smoking crack all day, and I didn't have my glasses on. Oh, distance. my gosh. Oh. Well, it's 2 o'clock good- in the morning. Yeah, this is a good place to take a break. Okay, we're going to pause briefly for a commercial break. break. Stay tuned. Okay. Okay. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress 
and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Bob Ron and Kim Anklin are here to talk about the exoneration of New York's Jonathan Fleming. And Kim, you were just saying about how the the witness um, who was in custody over another crime uh, was 400 and some feet away from where the crime happened. Go ahead with that because we, we want to hear a little bit more about what you did to, to ferret that out. Well, she um, basically, if we go forward, she gets picked up. She gets this deal that, that is um, offered to her by the district attorney's office in exchange for her testimony against Fleming, they were going to drop these charges. And uh, we uncovered the command logs that prove exactly that. If you go forward in time into the case, he is arrested in, um, I believe it was August 19, 1989. He does not come up for trial until July 20th, 1990. So almost a full year, he sits at Rikers Island. In okay. that time, this, this witness becomes pregnant She's now, at the time of trial, seven months pregnant. She um, tries to tell the district attorney's office personnel and, who, and the investigators that she can't do this. She can't identify him. She doesn't, she doesn't know. She never did know. They basically harass and harangue her so much and use the, the, uh, the card that you don't want to have your baby in jail and basically, you know, coerce her into this testimony. She thinks there's more than her testifying, mm. that there's other people that, have, that saw this, and they kept telling her, oh, don't worry about it. There's, there's others. She is the only eyewitness that the case has. Oh, wow. So she goes and she does this false testimony. No, not really believing that he's going to be convicted, but he is convicted. And about two or three weeks later, she can't live with herself. She finds the defense attorney signs an affidavit, I lied, I lied. They go through a whole other hearing, which is almost as long as the trial itself, and she comes clean with everything. But at that point, the judge says, well, I don't believe her. So when she's telling the truth, they don't believe her. When she's lying, they're coercing her into the lie. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, so that's that witness. That's the only eyewitness that the, that the uh, prosecution had. And what other evidence did they have? There was no physical evidence. There's no ballistics, no, no footprints, shoe prints, fingerprints. Of course, there's no DNA. It's 1989 at the time. There's no blood spatter evidence. There's, there's nothing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but there's, a, but there's other evidence showing that he was there in, in Florida. Right. And what, Bob? Uh, going back to, to what Kim had said before, where they had the hearing after the trial... With this, where this witness recanted, and the judge said 
you know, that I don't believe you. Uh, the reason that the judge made that statement, I believe, is because he was not made aware of the command logs, the written documentation that the deal was made with the prosecutor's office. The prosecutors never disclosed it to the judge that there, mm-hmm. there was a deal. So oh, wow. he based his decision. He based his decision on in the hearing uh, just on what he heard. Not, not that you know there, there was no evidence sure. given to him to indicate that there was a you know that she was telling the truth that there was a deal made. Amazing and and so how did you guys get involved in this originally? Well, the Fleming family contacted us uh, at the first time in two thousand and ten. And they asked us, uh, they explained the case to us, and they asked us if, if uh, we would be interested in, in helping them. And they told us that they had, uh, you know, over the years, they had hired other private investigators, and they were disappointed in them because uh, they were told um, that, you know, there was nothing to the case, that I can't help you, uh, there's nothing that can be done, you know, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. So meanwhile, so, they took their money. But they took oh, their money. Yeah. Right. Uh, so when they, when they spoke to us in, in 2010, uh, you know, Jonathan actually interviewed us from, from his jail cell over the phone. He and interviewed asked us you, huh? <laughs> That's he, great. he did, yeah. It was like, you know, he was, it was like a job interview for us. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, unfortunately, at that time, uh, they, uh, their financial situation was such that they, they, couldn't, they couldn't hire us, but they told us that they would be calling us back. And then, lo and behold, in, in March of 2013, they, they did call back, and they told us, at this time, we would like to hire you. And uh, uh, it was at the end of March, and we started the investigation. We picked up the, uh, the, uh, the box of transcripts uh, in, uh, in April. I believe it was April, April 7th. April 7th. Yeah, April yeah. 7th, 2013. And and, and, he, he was exa- and we found out he was he was going to be exonerated one year to the day later. That's amazing that you could pull this together in a year after he's already served twenty four years. That's amazing. But that but that also goes to anyone who's considering working these cases is that you have to have, you know, a retainer that's going to put you focused on a case like this for at least six weeks. Right. Because nonstop. You mm-hmm. you don't yeah you can't you're not doing anybody any favors by thinking you can do this part time. You now, have to you, go in. It's 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 a big case to to read everything and to know everything. It's a huge you have case. to read everything before you even go out into the field. Did you get the transcripts from Jonathan? Or we actually got them from the, his his new defense attorney. His new defense attorney. Okay, so so before you ever even started going out and doing the footwork, you read everything there was to read about it. I read um, all the detective reports. Bob was reading the detective reports, too, and I was probably halfway through the, through the trial transcripts where I, I had enough where I was disgusted enough that I said, we just got to go to the crime scene. I, you know, you, you have to see it um, mm-hmm. to understand the, the, the testimony just to get the lay of the land and to see where everybody says they were. And when you go out to the crime scene and you put yourself in the position, I mean, it's like the movie My Cousin Vinny. You know, where okay. <laughs> you're telling me you can see through that dirty window, through those bushes across the way. Through the, I mean, it, it was unbelievable. And we couldn't see each other from where the shooting happened to where this witness says that she saw it. And remember, she so, already recanted. She already said she yes. lied. Yeah, talk but, about we, that, we, Kim. Talk, 
Talk about you and Bob we, going out to the scene and, and how, you, how you set that up. Well, we, we well, went we, out, and I, I was up in the window, in the second floor window where the witness was. Bob was where the, where the victim was shot, and we were talking on the phones, and I'm like, can you see me? And I'm waving at it, and, I'm put my, and then I put my hand out the window through the bars, and I'm trying to, and he says, I can't see you. I'm like, I can't see you either. So then I take a white piece of paper, and I'm flapping it. To, I say, can you see it? I can't see it. So I'm like, well, then how could anybody do this and bring this case forward to, mm-hmm. to prosecute Fleming? I mean, just stand there at the crime scene. How do you get there? Unfortunately, we were there, it's, we, it's about we were getting doing this at 11, Yeah, We were doing this at 11 o'clock in the morning. In and April, we, and, where there was no leaves on the trees. Okay. And, so it's daytime. And, and, she, right, and, and she sees it in the middle of the night. 2 a.m. In August. Yeah. yeah. In August, when there's all the leaves. <laughs> all uh, the foliage. Uh, okay, there's leaves on the trees. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. In the middle of the night, Bad it's lighting. dark out. And you can't see each other in the daytime. Right. That's pretty powerful. So how, how did it happen that you found, you found out about the, uh, the telephone records and the, re- the hotel receipt? That was introduced during trial. Um, well, the, 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 the actual receipt, he talks about it in the trial, that he had this receipt on him. And the detective on, um, that was testifying said, I don't recall anything about that. I, I don't know anything about that. That's all that happens with that receipt. So nobody knows anything about this receipt, but at least it was on record that, it, that, they, that there that was, was a receipt. Mm-hmm. And then, um, so in, you know, if you fast forward, we've already done our investigation. We've gotten the, unit, the Conviction Integrity Unit to take another look at it. We've been working with their investigators, which is unprecedented, to right. be joined in on a, on a case like this. Right. Um, we go to, we travel south, find one of the three perpetrators who finally says, nope, wasn't Fleming. It was these other, pe- these other two that were with me. And basically he admits to driving the, the shooter away from the scene. And it was after all that, that the ADA, we were in a meeting and she slid over the receipt and the, um, the report from the Orlando Police Department uh, that says that they interviewed uh, hotel personnel and said that he was there and she slid that across the table. Mm-hmm. So there's that Brady material that was hidden. And she says, I found this. Uh, we you also remember, found... You, you, you got to remember, you can't, you can't blend the two. You can't blend that, that right. ADA with the people who put him in. You know, she right. worked very hard. Yeah. Bob, what were you going to say? Uh, we also found, uh, at, at about the same time, uh, we also found the command logs from the precinct where the eyewitness was arrested. And the entries in the command log substantiate her story that she was taken by the police and she was held in the precinct for X number of hours. And then she, it, then, then she, she left the, the precinct and went to the DA's office. And then a short time afterwards, the charges against her were uh, dismissed. So mm-hmm. that substantiates her story about making a deal with the prosecution. And what, what happened to the, the real perpetrators? They're still out there. They were never One's arrested. Dead. One's dead, and the other two, um, we're not sure what the, the uh, prosecution's office. <laughs> they say they're, they're going to go forward, but I don't know. 
I, I, don't, I don't understand that since, you know, there's no statute of limitations on homicide. But uh, it, it, it's a head shaker. Yeah. It, and it may, the case may be screwed up just enough where they don't think they're going to get a conviction. So You still have to try. You still have to yeah. investigate. And you still I, have agree. To, I agree. I yeah. agree. This, uh, this is an amazing story. And so um, at the time this happened, so this is August, what, 15th, 1989? Mm-hmm. Correct. Two um, o'clock in the morning. How long had Fleming been in Orlando? August 12th. So a few days. Mm-hmm. Correct. And when did and he, he comes return? Back, uh, he comes back the evening of the 16th. And how long before they arrested him? They picked him up on August 18th at about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. He was walking out down the street, and they just came up on him and took him down to the ground, cuffed him. And that was the last time Fleming was free. Until uh, April eighth, two thousand fourteen. And Kim, you were telling me that, it, that amazingly, um, Jonathan Fleming is a, a very nice man, and he he carries no anger over spending all this no. time in prison. No, and he he's, even when he, we were working with him over the year, you know, we talked to him several times during the week, and you know, you, the, there comes a point where you say, "Geez, you know, Jonathan, how do you stay so calm?" I mean. <laughs> And he says, well, it doesn't do you any good. And he says, and you know, I'm, I'm not angry with the witness who testified against me. I feel that she was just as much of a victim as I was. Well, and, he's right there. You know, he, he's, he's a, I, I always say, this happened, we were in the right time in history for this case to happen, and we had the right client, and we had the right attorney. Anthony mm-hmm. Mayle was the right guy to, to work this with us. He was a sole practitioner. He had you know, he's by himself. He doesn't have a big law firm with all these resources. He actually, when, when we got the case from him, he said, I, ha- I, I can't go any, for- any further with it because I'm afraid I'm going to mess up this case. Uh-huh. I'm only one guy. So um, if you need any help, good luck to you. So when we took the case, it was all on us. Right. And we were out looking for um, appellate attorneys to help us, and nobody wanted to help us. How many hours do you think the two of you have into this case? Probably over a thousand. Easily, yeah. Yeah, and I'm I know not not all of that was paid for. No, no, yeah. no that, <laughs> not that, even close. That, huh? that, that retainer ran out in the first uh, month, <laughs> month and a half, and and then by see what happens though is that by that time. I'm completely convinced. I mean, we don't go into these cases believing anybody. We all know right. we're all investigators. We we don't believe anybody. Right. So that's how you go into a case. And when it came to the point where, oh my God, this guy really didn't do it, then you can't leave him. You know. And he said to us, please, you know, don't leave me hanging here. We're like, we can't. Right. We we got. Yeah. We'll just keep going. And yeah. we did. And then from June until April, we just kept working. Amazing. And how, how did it come about that you got it before a judge to get him exonerated? Well, what we well, did we, was, we, uh, since the, none of the appellate attorneys that we, uh, that we went to wanted, wanted the case because they all told us uh, that it was almost impossible to get the conviction overturned and it would take too long and it's, you know, it's, it's a very difficult and long process, and, and basically they, they didn't want to do it. 
Or so they, and they want a boatload the, of money just to look at the transcripts. Mm-hmm. Right. So the, the, the other option was uh, the, the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office is one of two district attorney's offices uh, within the city of New York that make up the five boroughs of the city of New York. Brooklyn uh, has a conviction integrity unit, which was set up in 2011, uh, basically to, uh, to do internal investigations into possible wrongful convictions within their office. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have a strict criteria on uh, what they need in order to reopen a case. And uh, witness recantation uh, was not in that criteria. Mm-hmm. The, the only criteria that they have to reopen a case is newly discovered evidence. Okay. So we had to provide that which we did, and then we went to them and we sat down uh, and we had a meeting with them and based upon the newly discovered evidence and affidavits that we had from witnesses who were never spoken to by the police who we found, uh, we, we convinced them to, to reopen the case. And it was at that time they assigned uh, two investigators and an assistant district attorney to, to work with us and and uh, like Kim said before, uh, you know, in an un- I think is an unprecedented move. We actually all worked together. We we strategized. We sat down. We come up. We came up with investigative plans. We bounced ideas off each other, and we worked with the DA's detectives. Um, from yeah, that but point I got to say though, we didn't go into that lightly. We we did not no. go in to say, hey, how you doing? No, we took a long time and did our own due diligence on that unit and who was in that unit because we were going to offer up our client as a sacrificial lamb. And that's right. the problem with some of these units. It's just like, you know, it took a lot of talking uh, and with the defense attorney that came back into the fold, Anthony, and we really took a long time to try to figure out, is this something we want to do? Because basically it's a big proffer and they're going to know well, everything about our case. So your concern is that they would be, uh, they would be involved to prove his conviction rather than prove right. his innocence. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's your biggest fear is that you're, they're yeah. just going to turn on you and, and continue to keep that, you know, uh, beating that drum. And uh, so it was, a, it was a tremendous, tremendous risk. We, we were yeah. exceptionally lucky. And we had, pros- a, we had a bureau chief that was, had this highest of integrity. He's no longer there, but he was fantastic. I mean, he, it was, it's not the unit. It was that man who who opened their box, their case file. And so I, he's like somebody that nobody ever will talk about, um, but he is the man who opened up that side of the, um, the case. Okay. We're going to take another break, Kim. Kim Anklin and Bob Braun will return in a moment. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 
1-800-530-3350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. We're talking about the long journey of Jonathan Fleming, who was exonerated just last month after 25 years in prison. And with me are two investigators who have hands-on knowledge of the case, Bob Ron and Kim Enkin. Um, so, I, you know, it, it's, it's just astonishing to me that uh, you were able to get this done. And because you're right, it's a very tough road. Um, you, were, you were working without the help of an attorney. You were on, out there investigating on, on your own. But the other thing is, I think with the two of you, you had credibility with the district attorney's office, which, which was a big help because of your, your background and credentials. I'm is not that sure true? if that was really a factor. No? no? <laughs> Do you? Do you, Bob? I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I, um, maybe a little bit, but I, I think the, the, uh, the, the, the key to so- the the, the key to the DA opening up to us and, and working with was, uh, I think, was not only the, the new evidence that we, we gave to them, uh, the newly discovered evidence, but I think it was our, uh, our conviction and belief that we did feel, you know, that Jonathan was, was innocent. And mm-hmm. when it came time for, uh, for us to go down south and interview the, the, that, that witness who was, uh, who was mentioned? You know, who was mentioned to the police back at the beginning? Um, we were, you know, we had told the DA's office that look, we're going down there to interview him. Uh, you know, whether you decide to or not, we're going because as part of our investigation, this has to be done. This this person mm-hmm. has to be spoken to. Mm-hmm. And the the bureau chief agreed and 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 sent us down there. But he was very very skeptical, and he said, "Do you really think?" that the four of you are going to go down there and this guy is going to confess to you his part in this homicide. <laughs> and, and we all said at the same time, yes. In unison. And uh, we're like, yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we do believe that. You know? <laughs> and, uh, well, and, and then when we came back, he, he says, boy, that was a Hail Mary. And we said, no, it wasn't. I said, this, this was part of the plan. You know? <laughs> but, so you know, how- I have to say, though, you know, I think, too, why, why did they work with us? Why did they work with us? Well, 
we didn't start out the gate, you know, adversarial. We didn't, you know, you got to do the, you know, we went like, hey, listen, this is what we got. We know you have to do your investigation. We would love to, to share with you our, our files. I had everything digitally, you know, I can help you. Uh, give you access to our Dropbox as far as the trial transcripts. Would you like that? You know, it's like, a, let's work together. So it wasn't adversarial. It wasn't, you know, and as long as it, that was maintained, I think things were being done. As soon well, as anybody got their anger up, you know, we right. knew that was going to stall everything. Yeah. So, you know, on both sides, had, I have to hand it. It was a very professional uh, experience. And you guys had done your homework. I mean, you didn't just go in there with this case after talking to him and say, no. we think we have an innocent guy. You no. had done your homework. You were, you were internally, the both of you were internally convinced that they had the wrong person in prison. And you had some yes. facts on your side. And we didn't, we had, you know, I, I think we go back to, I, Jonathan Fleming interviewed Bob in 2010. I didn't speak to Jonathan until way after in 2013. I didn't want to speak to him because I wanted to keep that, like, I don't want to be sold. I don't want to be talked into anything. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also the approach we had with the unit. This is what we got, but we had to, like, not come at them and say, look at, you know, this is, can't you see this? We had to let them get there right. on their, on their own. own. Mm-hmm. And they yeah. did, you know, and we had, we had enough faith that, that, you know, the investigator that we worked with is exceptional, and we had to let him just get there himself. Even though it was, it was, you know, it was tough at times to go, can't you see this? But we, you know, we could only just show what we had. And, and sooner or later, we started winning them over. Right. And Bob, how did, you, how did you get this guy that was involved in the crime? How did you get him to talk? I mean, he was, wasn't he concerned that he was going to be arrested? And- he had to be concerned. <laughs> but it was, a, yeah. it was all of us. It was all of us. But yeah, go ahead, Bob. Yeah, it was. It took several hours, and uh, we were we were with uh, him and, and his mother, and uh, we were sitting at a picnic table out in their backyard, and um, basically we had to convince him that we knew, you know, what we knew about about the case, you know, that we didn't, and we didn't just and we didn't just know, we didn't just pick him out of a hat. Right, we didn't right. throw a dot at the map and showed right. up at his door. We 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 spent we went through uh, a lot of documentation, saying that you know so and so said this, so and so said that, and uh, this is you know this is uh, this is why we're down here talking to you about this. And then at one point, uh, it was asked of him, uh, you know, uh, are we going in, in the right direction here? And he just took a big sigh and said, "Yes, you are." And hmm. Then, you know, we then he started opening up a little more and a little more, and then, uh, you know, finally he, uh, you know, he told he us what his uh, what his part was, and that something <laughs> was not involved. And there were four of you guys, right? All, all right. there was, with he and his mom, yeah. him and I, uh, two two uh, the two detectives from the DA's office, and then two uh, two uh, detectives the from the. From the sheriff's office down there. <laughs> there was, so there were six of you? Yeah. There were six of and us. He, and, yeah, and it was like a little bit in the beginning of trying to, he was, it seemed like he was trying to flee, so we like, had the mad dash running around trying to get him. <laughs> so we, we got him, and we sat him down, and, and you know, um, it, it was. It was like, listen, you have these people here who are the, the, the uh, Fleming's 
investigators. You have the Kings County District Attorney's Office represented. You have the local sheriff's office. You think that we just picked you out of a hat? Yeah. Why would you think we're here? Why do you think we took all of this effort? We, you know, before you answer, just know we've been working this for many months. Yeah, yeah. And he did. He finally gave it up. But to his credit, actually, to his, to his credit, he finally to told the credit. truth. Now, he's still free. <laughs> but. Yeah. And did his mother have any idea that this had happened? So she, yeah, she never did. would admit it, but she, I mean, I don't, she didn't admit it. Yeah. No, she didn't admit it, but, but she, you know, she knew about she knew. The, 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 uh, the homicide and the crime, yes. Yeah. She didn't know her son was involved, though. Or you I don't think, think she, she did? I think she did, but you she would she never did? admit yeah. it. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Now, now, where is the prosecutor that prosecuted this case? Where is he today? He's still working at the the district attorney's office. Is he? Yes, he's still working, uh, conducting homicide trials. And did you ever talk to him? No. We we didn't. uh, The the Conviction Integrity Unit interviewed him there. their, you know, their own unit did, but we did not talk to him. Okay. And did he uh, appear at the hearing at all? No. 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 Okay. Huh. And because I was reading that um, there's been a lot of issues in that particular district attorney's office. Yes. <laughs> I'm saying that lightly, but there were a lot. Of, there uh, seemed to be a lot of uh, wrongful convictions coming out of there and prosecutorial misconduct. Yes, yes, yes. There is. You know, New York State is the fourth in the country for uh, wrongful convictions, and um, really? as far as counties, uh, Manhattan King was a Kings, Manhattan and Queens County rank seven, seventh, eighth, and ninth of the most wrongful convictions per capita in the entire country. Oh, and Kings County in Brooklyn. That's, where, that's yeah. where our case was. But, and it you was, know, Kim... Uh, Go ahead, Bob. It was just... Um, there, there was just an article on, online this morning uh, that, the, that the district attorney in Brooklyn uh, it has announced that he, he's going to spend over a million dollars... Uh, investigating wrongful convictions in that office. Amazing. So, is that uh, Kenneth Thompson? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So he's and the yeah and, and you know that hit you know uh, the Scarcella cases the Scarcella cases which is a detective that they're trying to just say he was a rogue detective that did all of this uh, this misconduct as a detective to cause all of these wrongful convictions in Brooklyn, which you know it's not the case. You know it's not one detective yeah. that could have done all of this, this damage. Right. But he's a scapegoat. You, he's a he's scapegoat. A scapegoat. Yeah. yeah. Is, he, is he still with the department? No, no he's, he's retired. 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 But he just, he, they just had, what was it, yesterday? Uh, a federal judge um, is allowing that he be, he's to be deposed on the Jabbar Collins case um, uh, which that, that's another wrongful conviction. He's suing the city for like $150 million for being wrongfully convicted, mm-hmm. which, you know, that's, that's a good step in the right direction too, that these judges maybe yeah. are getting some courage to, to open up this, this issue. 
Well, I know these integrity units are cropping up all over the country. And there's one in, at Santa Clara, um, the Santa Clara Police De- or San Jose Police Department is working, and the DA's office in Santa Clara, um, California is working with an integrity unit and working directly with the Innocence Project. So I know these integrity units are being successful and working with integrity on well, defense cases. So far, Dallas seems to be the one to watch. They're they're the ones that seem to be the most transparent. If you speak amongst the defense investi- uh, attorneys, defense, uh, defense attorneys, mm-hmm. they're very, very leery on a lot of them, and they sure. really, really think that we got very lucky on our case. Well, you certainly they have did. Their own opinions. As I, I know from personal experience, prosecutors take their convictions very seriously. That's how they get their and raises. That's their number. You know, it's how they get their assignments. It's how they get everything. I mean, it the promotion. Uh, yep. Yeah, uh, it is. Uh, it's a scary thing. It's a scary thing. And when you have people that uh, whose integrity isn't quite there, <laughs> then, right. uh, it's, a tough, it's a tough road. And the same thing with the detectives. Detectives take their cases, and that, well, they should, very seriously. And when they have somebody they believe is the, the perpetrator, they want to see them convicted. So, right. Um, also, I, I just want to also tell, tell everybody that investigatinginnocence.org is an organization that was founded by uh, Bill Clutter in, in Illinois, and we've now become regional directors for New York, and we're Good. trying to fundraise for defense investigations um, to these types of cases to find, you know, to raise money to um, hire investigators for other people. So it's a, it's, a, it's a fairly new organization. It's only been around a couple of years, but they've already got three exonerations under their belt. That's great. So I, I recommend everybody go to um, investigatinginnocence.org and check it out. And they're and they're looking for uh, they're looking for investigators throughout the country, throughout the country. to become okay. to become part of uh, part oh, that's of this. Good. So investigating.org. That's that's good investigating, information. Investigating investigating innocence. In, I'm sorry. Investigating All one word. Right. Yes. Okay. All right. We're almost at the end of the hour, Bob and Kim, uh, but if you, um, Bob, if you would tell people, family members who have somebody they believe to be factually innocent in prison, what, are they, what should they do? Well, the first thing, um, I, I would recommend that they reach out to, uh, to an investigator, uh, but they need, to do, uh, they need to do their due diligence uh, on on the investigator that they you know that they ultimately hire, uh, just like Jonathan Fleming did and his family did with us. Uh, yes, the family would need to do that. You know, uh, they to, did their own investigation the on us. Yeah, there you go. Uh, and um, secondly, I think which is very very important is that um, the investigator, wh- whichever investigator they, they decide to hire, is going to want to see. All of the court documents, every right. every piece of paper. So they would need to get all of that information together in one in one place to give to the investigator once they do retain them, because okay. uh, that that is very important. All uh, right, that we've the got it. Have- I'm sorry, Bob. They're going to cut That's us right. off. We're at the end of the hour, and this has been a terrific show. Um, okay. Thank you so much, both of you, oh, you're Bob, welcome. Ron, and thank you. Kim. Kim Ankin and for being with us. So, um, so listeners, tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening.
You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.